I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers, credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace Belden, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere M-E-E-R Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, Consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we welcome back to the show S. Michael Link, Canadian legal scholar and the outgoing United Nations Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the occupied Palestinian territories. Having served six years in this position, Link's latest report, which was published in March, will be his last as a new special repertoire succeeds him. In this, his final report, he joins the ranks of Amnesty International, Betselem, Human Rights Watch and others in raising the A-Ward, Apartheid, to describe what is happening in the occupied Palestinian territories. He joins us to discuss the report 
in-depth and its findings on this edition of Parallax Views. And with that being said, let's get right to it with UN Special Rapporteur Michael Link. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to have on. Michael Link, Canadian legal academic, uh, associate professor at the University of Western Ontario, and the special rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the Palestinian territories occupied since 1967. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks. Thank you for inviting me on. So, Michael, I wanted to invite you back on the show because I saw that you have a new report out or coming out um, on the situation of human rights in the Palestinian territories occupied since 1967. Now, this is an interesting report because my understanding is that there were issues uh, because of COVID-19, among other things, uh, getting into um, the occupied territories. Could you talk a little bit about that? And maybe for my listeners that uh, don't recall our last conversation, tell us about how uh, you became involved in uh, working as the special rapporteur on this issue. Sure. Um, special rapporteurs are appointed by the UN Human Rights Council, which uh, sits in Geneva. Uh, and the council is made up of 47 member states of the United Nations. They're elected onto the council on a on a regional basis. Special rapporteurs are human rights experts who have been given a specific mandate by the Human Rights Council. Most of the uh, mandates are global. The, the special rapporteur on the right to food, the special rapporteur on the right to water. Um, I and the special rapporteur, obviously, with a geographic focus. There is a special rapporteur, say, on human rights in North Korea, a special rapporteur with respect to Myanmar. I'm a special rapporteur with respect to the occupied Palestinian territory. I was appointed... Real quickly, if I could. Um, so it's it's mandated, and I, I wanted to get this out of the way because some people have said to me, oh, are, is it just volunteer work? Are they uh, doing advocacy work? How would you explain to people... Uh, what sure. I'm, I'm a volunteer in the sense I don't get paid for my work. I keep my my day job, which is as a law professor. Uh, and that's the same for all of us. Most of my fellow special rapporteurs are probably in the same boat. Most of them would be university professors, the, um, which is a job that can support the idea of, of having a an appointment with this kind of responsibility. And because uh, as, a, as an academic, they probably have the expertise that the, that the Human Rights Council is looking for um, to be able to do the specialized human rights uh, investigations and advocacy that the council is expecting from us. So I was appointed in, in 2016 for a six-year appointment. My appointment is done at the end of uh, this month. You're, it's one and done. Once you're, you're appointed, you don't reapply for the position. Um, so they've chosen a new special rapporteur will begin uh, on the 1st of May. Um, my last report, which is what you were referring to, was delivered to the Human Rights Council at the end of uh, March 2022. Um, and I deliver it. Um, it's presented to the, to the member states, and they have a chance then to raise questions with me uh, regarding the uh, 
uh, the report and its findings, as do members of civil society have a, have a chance to make statements on it as well. Um, so my work would normally uh, mean going to Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories once or twice a year. Alas, that's never happened. Um, Israel will not allow me as special rapporteur into the uh, occupied Palestinian territory. So when I go to the Middle East to meet people face to face, I would be going to Amman, Jordan, uh, where UN officials and human rights organizations would come across the Jordan River and meet me in Amman um, and brief me on what's been occurring uh, as human rights trends in the OPT, the Occupied Palestinian Territory. Obviously, I haven't been going for over the last two years because of COVID. Um, in fact, I haven't, I've been delivering my reports uh, to the United Nations in New York and Geneva over the last two years um, remotely. It's only this uh, in March that uh, COVID had lifted enough that I was able to travel to Geneva uh, to deliver my report. So I want to get into all of that, but the, the reason I mentioned the volunteer aspect was simply because, and I'm sure you get this from other people, and I disagree with this criticism that people will have, but I've heard people say, well, if they're volunteers, they're just advocates, and therefore, you know, they're biased, and we can just dismiss what they're saying in these reports. How do you respond to those people? Sure. Well, it's true. We're all biased. We're all biased in favor of human rights. Um, whatever mandate we've been appointed to, we look to it uh, and you know, on those issues, either global issues or specific geographic issues, through the lens of human rights. And that's what my responsibility and my direction is from the Human Rights Council, is to understand the human rights trends that are going on with the 55-year-old Israeli occupation in the occupied Palestinian territory, and to be able to make determinations with respect to this. I'm Whether my job is uh, appointment is, is voluntary uh, or not, um, and whether I'm paid or not, I don't think would change the focus of, uh, of my work or the nature of my expertise with respect to this. I'm certainly, when I was appointed, I remember telling people, I come into this with an open mind, but I don't come into it with an empty mind. I understand uh, the various trends that have been, have been going on for the last number of years with respect to the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Um, I was published in the area. I, in fact, had worked for the United Nations back in the end of the 1980s uh, with the, uh, in Jerusalem on human rights and refugee issues. So, um, you know, I, I, would, I would suggest that the, the uh, special rapporteurs who are appointed for their human rights expertise by the Human Rights Council, you know, come with an elevated understanding of, uh, of rights, uh, of international law, uh, and of, of the vulnerable, and they're there to advocate, if you like, for the greater adoption of a human rights lens and understanding contemporary social and economic problems. And I was going to say, in a lot of ways, you're, you're standing on the shoulders of giants. I mean, I believe before you, it was Richard Falk, who is one of the most cited international uh, law scholars today, and also uh, John Dugard, who uh, was involved in you know, um, fighting against South African apartheid. Absolutely right. Um, I'm uh, whatever I've been able to accomplish as special rapporteur over the last six years uh, is largely due to uh, the path uh, uh, being blazed by John Dugard, uh, who was special rapporteur, I think, from 2001 to 2008. Uh, and then uh, Richard Falk, who was special rapporteur from 2008 to 2014. Um, their work, um, both special rapporteurs before they became special rapporteurs and since 
uh, their appointments expired, uh, has been monumental in our understanding of human rights in the occupied Palestinian territory. So I'm deeply blessed to have them as predecessors. They've been uh, always ready to give me wise counsel uh, with respect to my work as Special Rapporteur, and I simply stand on their shoulders um, going uh, for the six years that I served as Special Rapporteur. Now, it's interesting. You said that you uh, came up against problems with uh, the, the state of Israel, and I, I think in the report uh, you write that uh, there were requests made to meet with the permanent representative of Israel to the United Nations, and uh, I don't believe those were accepted. Uh, it reminds me a bit of, um, there's a journalist in, in Israel by the name of Gideon Levy uh, who used to report on Gaza. He's not allowed in Gaza anymore, um, along with, I don't think any Israeli journalists really are allowed to go there anymore. Uh, are there a lot of issues that people looking into these human rights issues come up against uh, when it comes to uh, the state of Israel? Well, sure. Um, the... Uh, you know, one one main problem is what I've just mentioned. I'm not allowed in, so I I'm, I lose the benefit of being well, able. Why are you not allowed in, though? That's I guess what I'm asking. Sure, Israel does not accept my my mandate. It, it it deems the Human Rights Council as biased. It deems the United Nations as as biased, and it doesn't think that it's um it's it's occupation, which it does not, which it denies as being an occupation, um, deserves to have the special attention of a special rapporteur. So um, in many ways, um, Israel is getting, um, uh, I guess, more and more weary of the various critics, uh, institutional critics, um, who supervise or oversee or look into its conduct of the uh, 55-year-old occupation. Certainly, this is true with respect to uh, Palestinian human rights and civil society organizations, as you may know. Uh, six of them were designated as terrorist organizations by Israel last October. Um, that designation has still not been lifted. Um, all of these organizations depend in some form or another on external funding coming mainly from European states and from the European Union itself. Um, so the some of what, um, now I should say Israel has not to the satisfaction of a number of these states provided um, persuasive evidence that there is a link between terrorism and these six organizations. They've, uh, some of them have, have outrightly rejected the Israeli uh, evidence dossiers and said they plan to continue um, uh, funding these organizations and supporting them politically uh, to the extent possible. Um, with respect to the work I do, because I can't go into the occupied territories, I depend heavily on civil society organizations, Palestinian, Israeli, and international, for their reports. Luckily, in my case, this is probably the best documented conflict in the, in the modern world. It's not the best reported, but it certainly is the best documented. So I have the benefit of lots of uh, thoroughly documented, well-sourced, uh, well-framed reports and investigations each year from these Palestinian, Israeli, and international organizations. Now, you mentioned those uh, six, I believe they were Palestinian human rights activists that Israel claimed were involved in terrorism. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but they were also, I, I believe, um, targeted uh, by the NSO group spyware. Is that correct? Some of them were, yes, uh, and, and, some, and some of the Pegasus. Uh, spyware was found on uh, on their phones. Um, this is probably 
Um, it, it's it's to be condemned, but it's probably to be expected that Israel would use uh, this kind of private-public co cooperation uh, to be able to spy on and surveil uh, what human rights groups, Palestinian, Israeli, and international, are up to with respect to their reporting on the uh, on the occupation and, and the human rights trends. Now, when we say the uh, OPT, the Occupied Palestinian Territory, I think some people, you know, like for instance, uh, maybe a family member of mine that isn't as uh, aware of, of world events, they may say, well, what does that mean, occupied Palestinian territory? Is there a non-occupied territory? What, I guess what I'm asking is what exactly are the occupied Palestinian territory? Sure. The occupied Palestinian territories are, uh, are the West Bank, which includes East Jerusalem and Gaza, these are territories that were captured and occupied by Israel in the June 1967 war. Um, the uh, under the laws of occupation, which we've we've had since before the Second World War, but we codified them and updated them and made them even more stringent with the 1949 Geneva Conventions. It places a number of specific duties and obligations on occupying powers. Occupying power, an occupation must be temporary. It must be short term. The occupying power is not allowed to annex even a square millimeter of occupied territory. The occupying power has to uh, be in act in good faith um, and obey all international law and UN resolutions on the occupation. And an occupying power has to act as a trustee, as a acting in the best interests of the population under occupation, which would be the Palestinians. So those are the four cornerstones of uh, the laws of occupation. And Israel is in violation of all four of those principles, meaning um, that this has probably now become a illegal occupation. Um, the world has, um, has endorsed these views through a number of resolutions at the Human Rights Council, the General Assembly, and the uh, United Nations uh, Security Council, which is the highest deliberative body we have at, uh, in our international system. And uh, yet Israel has is in, is in violation of hundreds of these resolutions. The big issue uh, for me is that uh, uh, Israel has is not been held accountable for its 55-year-old occupation or for its violation of all of these resolutions. The international community has passed these resolutions. It has said that the occupation should end um, and yet it has taken no meaningful steps to impose any kinds of, um, of accountability measures on Israel uh, to force it to end the occupation. We can see the huge difference in international law and its application if we simply compare what's going on with respect to Russia and Ukraine. You know, within days of the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022, uh, in, uh, in February, uh, there were both resolutions adopted by the uh, General Assembly, uh, as well as a, a huge number of accountability measures um, designed to uh, impose sanctions on, on the um, Russia until uh, it winds up ending its violations of international law and withdraws completely and unconditionally from Ukraine. Yet the same kinds of actions, even though we've got this, this basket full of, uh, of resolutions, has never occurred with respect to, uh, to Israel. If you could, and I know this is putting you on the spot, but when we talk about occupations, are there any past occupations that we can talk about that are very different from this? Because to me, 
what is happening now, and it's been happening since 1967, this is a permanent occupation, which to me means it's more than just an occupation. This is something almost entirely unheard of. Sure, sure. A, a, a permanent occupation, a forever occupation, is a legal oxymoron. It, 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 it can't exist because occupations are meant by the very nature to be built with wood rather than concrete. So occupations that would be sort of a model for the modern world would be, say, the American occupation of Japan beginning in 1945. That ended in the early 1950s when, with the complete restoration of Japanese sovereignty. Uh, the Western Allies occupation of Germany uh, from 1945 onward, again, in the eight to 10 year range. And again, uh, at the end of the uh, occupation, um, the restoration of sovereignty to, at that point, West Germany. Um, even the American occupation or the, uh, the coalition led by America, its occupation of, of um, Iraq beginning in 2003 was, was ended within uh, seven or eight years formally, even though Amer some American troops stayed on after the, uh, the end of that, uh, that formal period. So th that gives you a model, a, a benchmark for how occupations are supposed to be uh, administered. Doubtlessly, there were, there were problems or flaws with the American occupation of Japan or the Western occupation of Germany, but essentially they ended as soon as they could. They had rebuilt the institutions for democracy uh, and for governance in both G West Germany and, uh, and Japan. Um, and they left without claiming uh, a single inch of Japanese or, or, or German territory as, uh, as their own. Um, this is in complete contrast to the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories, where Israel has been putting, as we know, uh, 300 settlements and 700,000 Israeli settlers uh, as of this date into the occupied Palestinian territories, East Jerusalem in particular, in the West Bank. Um, and uh, uh, this is strictly forbidden under international law. And the reason it's forbidden is that the world recognized beginning in 1945 with the creation of the United Nations, that the uh, when, if an occupying power is moving civilian, uh, its own civilian population into the occupied territory, that's not for security purposes, that's not for administration purposes, that's in order to be able to create a demographic fact on the ground in order to be able to establish a future sovereignty claim, which as I said, is profoundly illegal under international law. We don't recognize annexation anymore as being, uh, as being lawful or in accordance with international law. Yet this is what Israel has been doing since the beginning of its occupation in 1967, is moving in a civilian population into the occupied territory with the express intent of claiming sovereign rule over the, uh, over the territory. So th those populations that are moving in, that's what you mean when you say the settlement populations. That's correct. Israel is building settlements, uh, Jewish towns, cities, and villages in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, which are occupied territory, for Jewish settlers, Israeli Jewish settlers, to move into. Indeed, um, you know, with, with over 700,000 Israeli settlers in the occupied territory, that's 10% of the Israeli Jewish population living beyond its recognized pre-67 borders. And what these, does that mean for the Palestinians that live it, there? Sure. It, what it means is, uh, is that there's no two-state solution. There's no Palestinian state. Um, Israeli leaders have moved well beyond a two-state solution. If you look at uh, statements made by 
former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu or present Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, they explicitly state they are against the creation of a Palestinian state and a Palestinian state will not occur on, on their watch. Um, the facts on the ground of these 300 settlements and 700,000 settlers means that Israel has moved well beyond a two-state solution. Right now, what we have, in effect, is a one-state reality of unequal rights, with Israel ruling uh, the entire territory from the Mediterranean Sea to the uh, to the Jordan River. Um, Israel didn't establish those settlements for two related reasons. One is the demographic facts on the ground to, to establish a, a Israeli claim of, of annexation of these territories, and two, uh, is to prevent this, the establishment of a Palestinian state. Um, so th th the international community has said most recently from the Security Council in December 2016, it said that the settlements are a flagrant violation under international law. And that resolution asked the Secretary General of the United Nations to make a quarterly report to the Security Council uh, asking whether Israel has taken any steps to stop settlement um, expansion uh, and to begin to dismantle the settlements. And in 21 reports, quarterly reports, since the beginning of 2017, the Security uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations or the UN Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process has reported to the Security Council on 21 occasions that Israel has taken no steps uh, to comply with this request under the uh, um, uh, under the Security Council Resolution 2334. Um, the Security Council receives these requests, um, or sorry, receives this information and uh, has taken no steps in order to hold Israel accountable. So yes, Israel is, is the prime, has a prime responsibility for ending its violations of international law, but the international community also has a responsibility uh, for holding Israel to account and putting in, and enforcing it to comply again with international law. Without that, without that accountability by the international community on Israel, Israel recognizes that it's free to continue with its settlement expansion and dooming any prospects of a two-state solution. I want to get deeper into the issue of, of settler violence, but uh, first, so th these settlements are, are being created. There's a growth of settlement populations, as you put it, in the West Bank. I, I guess I want to really hone in on this, like beyond all the talk of law. I guess what happens to the Palestinians that were living there? Are they just, are they completely displaced or? Mm -hmm. Sure. What you have today is, as I said, 700,000 Israeli settlers in East Jerusalem and, and the West Bank um, who enjoy the full panoply of Israeli citizenship rights. They have the right to vote. They have the right to social uh, social benefits. Indeed, the creation of these 300 settlements in East Jerusalem and the West Bank would be impossible without the huge financial outlay from the state of Israel and from other parastatal uh, organizations such as the Jewish Agency or the Jewish National Fund or the World Zionist Organization in creating and sustaining uh, these settlements. These settlements are built on Palestinian land uh, Palestinian land is expropriated and confiscated in order to create the settlements, in order to be able to create um, the dense network of highways that link the settlements to each other and to the main cities inside of Israel. Um, Palestinians are, are in the West Bank 
and East Jerusalem are living in smaller and smaller enclaves of land that are all cut up. What we have with respect to the West Bank alone is 165 separate enclaves of land that the Palestinians live on that are separated from each other with respect by Israeli walls, Israeli checkpoints, uh, Israeli highways, and Israeli military no-go zones. So you have this population increasingly fragmented and scattered and separated from one another. Um, and these 2.7 million Palestinians in the West Bank do not have any of the political, economic, or legal rights that the Jewish settlers living among them wind up enjoying. That's why I, in my most recent report, concluded that, at least with respect to the occupied Palestinian territory, this meets the international definition of, of apartheid. I'm not the first to be able to say that. I'm not even the first in the UN to be able to say that. I'm simply following the footsteps of a number of Palestinian, Israeli, and international human rights groups who have concluded, like Amnesty International, uh, Human Rights Watch, uh, Al-Haq, Bat Salem, uh, Yashtin, um, Al-Mazan, have all said that the that the rule Israeli occupation and its rule over the Palestinians uh, amounts to apartheid. I agree with that analysis with respect to the occupied Palestinian territory because of the dual legal and political system that Israel has imposed between you know, these standard citizenship rights for the uh, Israelis, Israeli Jews living in the occupied Palestinian territory, and the absence of rights uh, that cannot be accessed. By the, by the Palestinians living there. So the question of uh, settler violence, uh, could you speak to that? Because I saw uh, one of the videos, um, the, the footage of the attacks on uh, people being beaten with clubs, uh, having stones thrown at them, the burning of a car. What exactly was that all about? What is this settler violence that's occurring? Sure, there there are a number of Israeli a number of the Israeli settlements that are deep into the West Bank. Um, they're generally called outposts because they weren't established by Israel uh, officially, but they are supported by Israel in terms of, of being connected to the water, power, and sewage systems. The roads are built for them into these settlements uh, by Israel or by the Israeli military. These tend to attract more radical. Um, Israeli Jewish settlers, and they in turn are using, I guess, the protection they have from Israel and its military to attack Palestinians living near them uh, to try to make it harder for Palestinians to continue living on their land. So 2021 marked the highest number of recorded uh, settler attacks on Palestinians and their property since these uh, statistics first began to be uh, kept in 2012. And every indication is that these subtle, the settler violence is increasing in 2022. Uh, what it means is that uh, Palestinians themselves are attacked by, uh, by the settlers almost entirely with impunity. They may be beaten, they may have rocks thrown at them, they may have um, graffiti um, put on their homes or on their cars or have their cars burnt. They may find that their olive trees have been, uh, have been uh, cut and, uh, and hacked. Uh, their sheep may be stolen or, or, uh, or poisoned. Their land may be overrun uh, with settlers. Um, all of it saying to the point, you don't belong here. We belong here. We belong here solely. Uh, and this is, uh, this is Israeli land. Uh, and you're here by sufferance and sufferance alone. So the 
you, you'll see some of the some Israeli cabinet ministers, particularly those of the small center-left parties that are in the ruling coalition, call this settler violence a disgrace uh, to Israel. But by and large, the Israeli military has allowed uh, the, this pattern of, of settler violence on the Palestinians uh, to continue more or less unabated. Um, you can often see the difference between the speed and thoroughness uh, by which the Israeli military is able to capture or locate uh, Palestinians when there's been a security attack, uh, which they call a terrorist attack, which often is a terrorist attack uh, on them, and the inability of uh, the military to seem to be able to curb or arrest perpetrators of uh, Jewish settler violence on the Palestinians. So you mentioned the A word, uh, apartheid, which we're hearing a lot more lately. I think people hear that term and they may think, oh, that, that, that has something to do with South Africa. Mm -hmm. I think people need to know what apartheid means. So could you give a definition of what we mean when we say apartheid in legal terms? Sure. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned South Africa. Obviously, that's where the term came from. Uh, in 1948, the, uh, the National Party in South Africa adopted legislation, policies, and practices which entrenched apartheid as an official state policy of white South I think it means apartness, right? And the term in, in, in Afrikaans means apart, apartness or separation, exactly. Um, but your comparison point, it, it, to determine whether or not apartheid exists from my perspective in the occupied Palestinian territory, isn't, you don't compare it uh, to South Africa, you compare it with the international uh, definition of, of apartheid. Um, the, and the international, international definition says basically, is there an institutionalized system of racial oppression and discrimination that was formed with the intent uh, or the intention to maintain this domination of one racial national uh, group over another and has the imposition of this system of institutionalized discrimination uh, is it accompanied by inhumane acts and by inhumane acts we mean acts like torture or arbitrary or extrajudicial killings or the denial of fundamental human rights or the or a big uh, gulf between the legal rights and political rights enjoyed by the uh, ascendant racial group and those not enjoyed by the subjugated um, uh, subject group. So I'm. that's the uh, three-part definition that I used and applied uh, with respect to the, what facts, the facts that I was able to gather with respect to Israeli rule in the occupied Palestinian territory. And I essentially, I've been, during the first four or five years of my special rapporteurship, I've been calling this an occupation. And I've been looking this, looking at this through the lens of international humanitarian law and international human rights law. And it struck me that this is, this is no longer a temporary occupation. And what you call an occupation that now has every intent of remaining permanent with one racial group dominating over another racial group. Um, and I looked through the legal dictionary, I looked through the political dictionary, and there is no other word I could find that, that sufficiently describes what is going on other than apartheid. If you've got a better word uh, for describing uh, this entrenched systematic uh, discrimination of one group over another with all of these accompanying inhumane acts, um, if you've got a better word for that than, uh, uh, than apartheid, then I'm, I'm happy to use it. 
But if you if you look, I mean, the poorest Jewish settlement in the occupied Palestinian territory enjoys far more legal, political, and economic rights than the, the most well-off Palestinian community in the uh, in the OPT. Um, and there's no hope on the horizon for any change with respect to this. Israel, of course, resents the term apartheid. They call it anti-Semitic. They call it unjust. Uh, they call it factually wrong. But they they won't give a definition um, as to what it actually is, or um, they don't answer the detail that my report and other reports have given uh, to support uh, the finding or the conclusion that this is, that, that this is apartheid. Um, and I'm... I, I've made the offer to uh, to meet uh, with Israeli officials to explain my point of view. Um, I don't hear back from them with respect to this. I think they recognize that, the, and this is one of I think their their biggest diplomatic issues uh, currently is how to re, how to refute or how to um, address the issue of apartheid that's been coming at them so swiftly by Palestinian Israeli international groups and now from myself as a, as a UN special rapporteur. If we could, can we talk about this issue of how does race factor into all of this? Because I think we're talking about an institutionalized regime from what you're saying of uh, systemic racial oppression, uh, discrimination and essentially domination. Right. Right. So when you, when you, we, we, we talk about the term of, um, uh, of race, um, I, want, I want to make it clear. I mean, I, I think we, we've gone beyond old classifications of, uh, of race based on skin color or, or other subjective means. Really what it is, is, is does a dominant group based on race or nationality or, or ethnicity, does it wind up um, granting a basket of privileged rights to its own group and wind up denying those particular rights to a subjugated group, a group that it is ruling over? Um, and the question really is, do they treat the subjugated group as a separate group and therefore less worthy of access to issues of human rights, equality, uh, a rules-based uh, rules based domestic order, and so on? And all of that, I concluded, given that um, you know, Israeli Jewish settlers have the right to vote, they have the right to run for office uh, over, the, over the authority uh, with, uh, that uh, that, gov that effectively governs them, that has all the benefits of, um, uh, of Israeli social benefits uh, that, that go with citizenship, and none of those are available to Palestinians. Uh, and the Palestinians are, are essentially ruled uh, by Israel in East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and, uh, and the Gaza Strip. So the, the, the group that rules over Palestinians um, allows none of those rights to be given uh, to the 5 million plus Palestinians living in the occupied Palestinian territory. Um, if this is not apartheid, then please explain to me what it is. It's interesting too, because this was going to get into something you mentioned near the end of the report. You say that this, you openly say this is apartheid. Uh, then you go on to say it does not have some of the same features as practiced in Southern Africa. In particular, much of what has been called petty apartheid is not present. So what is petty apartheid? And then what are the features that, that you would say are apartheid that are present if those ones aren't? 
Sure. Uh, petite apartheid or petty apartheid uh, in South Africa was some of the visual images that we, we still recall, uh, the separate benches between white um, African and, and colored populations, the separate drinking fountains, separate elevators, um, separate entrances in, into certain buildings. Um, those are not present in the occupied Palestinian territory. On the other hand, there are aspects of Israeli rule over the Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territory that weren't present in South Africa, uh, such as segregated highways. Uh, there are there are highways that are Israel is building now, where one one highway going from A to B uh, is built only for Israelis, where the other highway is built only for Palestinians uh, living. There's also there. a permit and an ID system as well, right? I beg your pardon. There's a permit and an ID system, I think. Yes, too. there is. Yeah, there, you show your your, your uh, ID card. It will indicate right away to the reader of the card um, if you are uh, if you are Jewish or Palestinian, and if you're Palestinian, are you Israeli citizen? Are you a resident of East uh, of East Jerusalem? Are you resident of the West Bank, or are you resident of uh, of Gaza? So right away, the your you all the classifications. That distinguish you, a Palestinian, from uh, from an Israeli Jew, from an Israeli, are uh, are present on on your ID card. Um, you know, as well, you know what what are present what's present in the occupied Palestinian territory that wasn't in apartheid South Africa would be these high walls and extensive checkpoints uh, that that regulate and limit where you can travel to. This, this barricaded population that you have in East in West the West Bank and particularly in Gaza. The fact that Israel regularly uh, attacks Palestinians, mostly in, in, the, in Gaza with, uh, with air missiles and with tank shelling. And you know, the abandonment of Palestinian social welfare uh, to the international community. In, in South Africa under apartheid, you know, the white South African government at least spent money, inadequate, uh, inequitable, but at least spent money on schools, uh, healthcare clinics, uh, and uh, and highways for the uh, for the black South African po- population. Um, so all of these, uh, this is why it's it it doesn't help to compare directly um, South uh, South Af- apartheid South Africa with occupied Palestinian territory if you're trying to determine if there is apartheid there because um, uh, it there are differences between the two um, and that could mislead you as to whether or not defining uh, the existence of apartheid in the OPT. It's your starting point for both situations and any other situation you claim to be apartheid in the world would be this three-part definition under under international law that comes from various human rights uh, instruments and, uh, and conventions that we have. Just a, a few more brief questions here. Uh, could you talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, the exploitation of labor that, go, that goes on in the OPT? Sure. Exploitation of labor would be one feature of what we call inhumane acts. Um, Israel allows um, uh, more than 100,000 Palestinians from Gaza and the uh, and the West Bank to be able to enter into Israel, uh, to be able to work um, uh, in Israel. As well, there are approximately 30,000 Palestinians who work in the Israeli settlements uh, in the in the West Bank. By and large, the jobs that the Palestinians going into Israel. Are, are working at are menial jobs. Rarely do they have union protection or any legal protection. They work in construction, they work in restaurants, um, they work in agriculture uh, within Israel. 
uh, for the lowest of wages and the least protected of, uh, of rights. And it's very similar for the 30,000 or so Palestinians who work in the settlements. They're there either to work um, in, uh, in construction of, uh, of the settlements uh, or in uh, the stores or shops there. They can't live there, but they, uh, they earn a living there. Um, and again, they're uh, they're poorly paid. They have they work without rights or without any access to union protection. Uh, that there, uh, they'd be uh, so all of this together would amount to what um, we would call the exploitation of labor of one group over another. Another thing I notice people get confused on when we talk about this subject of, of Palestinians is when we talk about the OPT, we're talking about the occupied. Palestinian territories. People will say, well, there's, I, I've met uh, Palestinians in Israel, but the, the, they weren't necessarily in the occupied Palestinian territory. Could you, could you explain, I, I guess, you know, there is a, there is a difference between, I, I guess, you know, uh, this part of Palestine and the OPT. Sure. R- regardless of, you know, you could be a Palestinian living in a, a part of Palestine that isn't being occupied but that doesn't negate the fact that there is this occupied territory where these things are happening. Do you get what I'm saying? I do. So to, to explain, the occupied Palestinian territories, we said, is East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza. And there were a little more than 5 million Palestinians living there without rights. There are, there's another 1.6 or 1.7 million Palestinians who live within um, the 1967 borders of Israel, they would have rights as um, as Israelis. Uh, they would carry an Israeli passport. They're able to vote in Israeli elections. They have access to some, but not all, of the social benefits of living as an Israeli citizen. Um, but they are they face a range of restrictions that mean they don't enjoy the same full rights as an Israeli Jewish citizen. Uh, of Israel, they particularly with, when it comes to property, um, there are most parts of, of Israel they are not allowed to purchase property or live on property there. They of of Israel of, in taking the entire area of pre nineteen sixty seven Israel, they um, can build land and and purchase um, houses or build houses on approximately three uh, percent of of Israel's territory. The rest is reserved either for state construction or for Israeli Jews uh, to be able to live on. There is approximately 50 to 60 pieces of legislation that wind up discriminating between um, Israeli Jewish citizens of, uh, of Israel and, uh, and Palestinian citizens of Israel. So in many ways, they have a, a range of second-class rights. They have more rights, certainly, than the Palestinians living in the occupied Palestinian territory, but they don't enjoy uh, the full rights uh, uh, of an Israeli citizen. And could you speak to the issue of, um, I guess, is is are we seeing collective punishment happening? Because we hear, we'll hear about the demolition of family homes mm-hmm. and people say, oh, well, they're terror suspects. So they, they had to have their homes demolished. It seems like some people are treated as guilty until proven innocent. Mm-hmm. Well, that's precisely what collective punishment is. Collective punishment is strictly forbidden by international law. Collective punishment is basically a punishment without crime. Um, and no modern legal system tolerates that. If, if you are going to be punished 
uh, through uh, any of our advanced criminal systems. It's because you've been charged with a crime. You know exactly what the charge is against you. You're given full opportunity to answer against that uh, that charge in a, in a criminal court, which has fair proceedings and fair evidence. Um, and that's why we abhor the idea of, of collective punishment in, in the 21st century world. Israel practices collective punishment in a range of ways. First of all, uh, Gaza itself, but with the two plus million Palestinians living there, are barricaded inside. They do not enjoy freedom of movement. Um, most Palestinians living in Gaza have never been allowed to leave uh, the Gaza Strip. Uh, what, who, who enters uh, and what enters into Gaza or who and what leaves Gaza is strictly controlled uh, by Israel. I have called that, and uh, many others uh, who have examined the situation of Gaza call that a form of collective punishment, which is illegal under uh, Article 33 of the Fourth Geneva Convention. Um, as well, you mentioned home demolitions. If a Palestinian commits a, a security offense or a terrorist act, um, it's likely he, and it's mostly he's, uh, who are alleged to have done this, um, the, the home they live in, the, you know, which may have all kinds of other family members living there, is then subject to being demolished by Israel as uh, deterrence and retaliation for the act. Um, Israel stopped this practice for a while, about 10 years ago, because the army had concluded that demolishing a, the family home of a terrorist, you know, even though none of his family knew what was going to happen, even though none of his family had committed any crime themselves, um, that this was not working and was not acting as a uh, as a deterrent. Um, but then it reinstated this several years later, and this still continues today. You're so just just to clarify here, so let, I, I guess what I said, people could misinterpret that. Where I was saying, oh, it seems like you could be guilty until. Uh, proven is so it could be that you know maybe these uh, people were tried and, and found to have engaged in terrorist activity but it's not like their families were necessarily guilty you know that yeah, no precisely you know the you know a, a, a young palestinian male may come with a family home that has five or ten people living in it if he goes out and commits a security offense or a terrorist act um, uh, and is either killed or is is captured and and then tried through military courts uh, which are themselves have uh, have dubious um, procedural and evidentiary standards and found guilty but but if if the Israeli government and Israeli military determine that this person had committed a security offense or a terrorist act then their next step is to then move to demolish the home uh, that he came from. He may not have lived there for a while. His family invariably didn't know that he was uh, involved in, in any planning uh, to commission such, a, such an offense. And yet their home is demolished um, because he happened to have some connection uh, with that particular residence. Um, that's collective punishment. That, as I said, is, is, um, is prohibited under international law. And yet this is a standard feature that's, uh, of the Israeli military that's been endorsed by the Israeli courts. How many children um, are, are in these territories and what have they suffered from this? Are there issues such as, um, you know, hunger in, in these communities? What, because I think when people see what happens to children, they start understanding more, you know, so I don't know if you can talk about that. But 
Sure, I'll, I'll, I, I can I, I can raise this issue. Um, there has been consistent concern raised in the last several years, in particular, with respect to the amount of violence that uh, Palestinian children have endured uh, during the uh, during the lengthy occupation. Uh, if you recall, or some of your listeners recall, in the aftermath of the 11-day violence inflicted on Gaza by by Israel in May 2021, um, the New York Times published a front page article with the pictures of the, um, I think there's roughly 56 or 57 um, Palestinian children, and I think one or two Israeli children who had died during the course uh, of that violence. And that, if you, if you like, broke a, a news media taboo with respect to reporting on the disproportionate um, harm and violence uh, felt by Palestinians, and particularly with respect to Palestinian children. In 2021, I think there were 70, 79 Palestinian Israeli children who were killed. Uh, 78 uh, were Palestinians, one was Israeli, one or two were Israeli children, and that's 79 too many. Um, Israeli children are, sorry, Palestinian children are regularly arrested uh, by Israeli security forces for either stone throwing or being a participant in uh, um, in a demonstration uh, against the occupation. Um, they're arrested. They may spend some time in detention. Some children are put into uh, uh, into lengthy uh, incarceration. No children, no child should, should have to go through this. The definition of a child under international law is anybody under the age of 18. Um, and yet we see um, this persistent use by, by Israel of, of arrest, detention, and unfortunately also the killing uh, of children uh, in the course of trying to sustain their occupation. If I can just make this point here, what's happening is you have, an with, with no peace horizon um, uh, in sight, um, with, the, with the occupation growing and becoming deeper and more entrenched with more settlers, more settlements, um, with Israel proclaiming there never will be a Palestinian state and they make no pretense of changing anything with respect to the um, the living conditions of, uh, of Palestinians. Obviously, there's a resistance uh, in effect to this. Israel is requiring greater levels of violence in order to be able to sustain the occupation. There are more deaths. Uh, there were more deaths of Palestinians in 2021 than at any year since 2014. We've already talked about the increased rate with respect to uh, settler violence uh, in uh, in the occupied Palestinian territory. Same thing is true with respect to um, uh, issue the the number of children who have been killed uh, in 2021 was the highest number since 2014 as well. All of this pretends that this, this occupation is, is getting worse. Uh, it's becoming more violent. It's becoming uh, deeper, more entrenched. Um, and yet the world, while issuing um, statements or even passing resolutions condemning Israel, takes no steps to hold Israel accountable with respect to this. Even though, as I said before, this is the best documented um, uh, occupation or conflict zone in the modern world. So there's two more things I wanted to say. And the first, I just want you to be able to answer with a yes or no, just so we can clarify for my audience, because I know this is so much to take in. So within the occupied territory, there are Jewish Israelis living alongside Palestinian Arabs. Those Jewish Israelis experience certain privilege when it comes to how laws are practiced and policies are practiced. 
whereas these Palestinian Arabs are essentially subjugated. Is that yes or no? Yes. Okay. And the last thing I wanted to ask you was, we've seen your report, we've seen Amnesty International at Selim, we've seen so many reports coming out in the past year saying this has become something akin to, if not, you know, out and out apartheid. I feel as if a lot of people um, have begun losing hope over the years. I think a lot of people almost feel fatigued by the crisis we face. And I think a lot of people that I've spoken to um, sadly have this view that, well, it's over. Um, It's over for the Palestinians. And I was wondering, what do you say to those people? Is there hope that this will come to an end? I mean, this is your personal opinion, of course. Sure. Um, No unjust situation can last for uh, an indefinite period of time, but particularly with our ability to be able to communicate and and see what uh, what is going on in any particular situation. It all depends on the quality of the the documentation of what's going on and also on the reporting. Uh, Alas, you know, with the world's eyes wide open, Israel has imposed an apartheid reality in a post-apartheid world. Where's my hope? Uh, my hope is that uh, those who are working to end the occupation, um, Palestinians, is br- very brave Israelis, and the end in the international civil society, um, that they are all speaking the same language of human rights. Um, they, they use the same um, vision of living in democracy uh, under the rule of law in a rights-based society. Um, they share the vision of a shared prosperity between Israelis and, uh, and Palestinians. I think we're a ways from being able to achieve that. Um, Israel um, is a formidable uh, military power um, and it uses that, um, that military power to be able to sustain the occupation. Um, but these, peop- these Israelis and Palestinians who work so assiduously to end the occupation and to realize Palestinian self-determination, they're the bridge, I think, to a, a future um, society and relationship where Jews and Palestinians can live in equality uh, and in democracy um, and begin to put their energies towards building um, for their own families and for their own communities and for, for their state, rather than having to repress and resist. And, and of course, I think it's also worth noting, uh, I think Palestinians held on this long. I, I don't think they're going to stop holding on. Uh, with regards to the recommendations you make, I don't know if you want to mention any of those in particular, but you uh, specifically recommend the reestablishment. Sure. Real, real quick, you recommend the reestablishment of the special committee against apartheid. Yeah, the, the United Nations had a had a special committee against apartheid, which I believe is established in the 1970s, and then it uh, it and dismantled it in the 1990s with the collapse of apartheid in Southern Africa. I recommend that this be reestablished in order to be able to uh, review and examine apartheid as it exists in the occupied Palestinian territory and wherever else apartheid may be found uh, in the uh, in the modern world. Um, I do uh, request that the international community develop a specific menu of accountability to hold Israel accountable, um, to try to, to end the occupation and to realize Palestinian self-determination through the end of um, arms and uh, military agreements, through the end of trade agreements, uh, and through when even initially of, um, of refusing to allow 
pr- goods and, and goods and products produced in Israeli settlements in the occupied Palestinian territory from reaching the international market. Those are all concrete steps that the international community can take in order to be able to exact a cost on Israel for continuing to defy international law uh, and for not ending the occupation. Um, these are the kinds of steps I think would cause the Israeli public to wake up and begin to wonder uh, whether or not um, it's worthwhile continuing this privileged life through the subjugation of the Palestinians and begin to think of other alternatives for how they're going to live with the Palestinians between the river and the sea. Well, I want to thank you, Michael Link, for coming on Parallax Season. And I, I just wanted to say, too, because of what you mentioned there, in a way, to me, this isn't just about Palestine. It's not just about Israel. This question of apartheid for me, I think if we keep allowing these things to happen, they have broader ramifications. I mean, we recently saw the, uh, the annexation of Morocco. If this doesn't stop, who knows where it will stop, correct? Oh, correct. I mean, and the essential point is um, we've created a, a detailed body of international law over the last 75 years, uh, and that's to try to ensure that there's no repetition of the horrors of the First and Second World War. Um, I'm not starry-eyed about international law. I realize it has its limitations. It's not self, uh, self-executing. self That requires political will uh, by governments. But we have international law, which gives us a guidepost, gives us a North Star to be able to evaluate any particular situation in the world and determine whether or not it's consistent with our detailed rules on, on human rights. Obviously, I'm saying that what's going on in the occupied Palestinian territory first falls short of our international standards regarding human rights and humanitarian uh, law. Uh, And the sooner the international community acts on its own laws, its own resolutions, and its own calls for accountability to bring this to an end, um, the more respect for international law we would find among other countries where there's an absence of rights and uh, and an absence of respect for a rules-based order. Um, cleaning up the situation in, in the occupied Palestinian territory would be a discouragement to uh, uh, to uh, uh, acquisitive occupiers or oppressive uh, authoritarian governments elsewhere in the world uh, to try to repeat this, thinking that the world's not going to notice and not going to care about these uh, about these violations. And the bottom line too is, and I think you know this: it's this is not about anti-Semitism making these criticisms. No, of course not. Um, you know, um, sometimes people will complain and say, well, Israel is being held to different standards than other countries. I say no. Israel is being held to the same standards as everybody else. Israel doesn't want to be held. Uh, the, the real question is that Israel doesn't want to be held to the same standards that should be guiding uh, everybody else. We, we, it, it, it's no, no help to advancing the cause of justice to engage in whataboutisms uh, with respect to you know, why why there are so many resolutions with respect to, uh, to Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. The resolutions are not about Israel themselves. They're about Israel's conduct in the occupied Palestinian territories. And the question isn't whether we pass too many resolutions at the United Nations on the occupied Palestinian territory. The question is why are so few of those resolutions ever put into effect? Thank you so much, Michael Link, for coming on Parallax Views. My pleasure. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found enlightening. 
my conversation with outgoing UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the occupied Palestinian territories, Michael Link. We're going to keep you posted on the situation in Israel-Palestine for the foreseeable future, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode. I also want to say that I respect groups like J Street, who, while not using the term apartheid, have condemned a lot of the rather vicious attacks on groups like Human Rights Watch. As anyone who listens to this show will know, I think they're providing an alternative to organizations like the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. And I happen to think they deserve credit for that, regardless of where anyone stands on the issue of the A-word, apartheid. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me financially at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's a one, five, ten, fifteen, and a hundred dollar tier. Any amount will help. It is your support that helps to keep this show going. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.